Let all things be done decently and in order. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come this morning, Lord, desiring to learn, learn more about You from Your Word. Lord, we we want to have the, the right attitude, the spirit of worship, worship in truth, worship in spirit. Lord, we want to be aware of Your presence among us, for we're gathered in Your name. So we pray that You enable us to do what Your Word teaches us to do when we come together, which is to seek to honor You in all things and to seek the benefit of one another as we sing and pray and give and hear Your Word corporately. I ask that You enable me to deliver the message You would have delivered. I ask that You grant clarity and accuracy Open all of our ears to hear what Your Word is saying, what You are saying to us through Your Word. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Just a little bit of uh, background here, because we're now in chapter 14 of, of this epistle and this is an epistle of Paul, and uh, um, which means it's it's a letter. Uh, I remember seeing a uh, in fact it was a church we used to go to years ago. They had a, a bulletin board. And you remember the old? Uh, I, I guess they still do them, but remember the old uh, family circus um, cartoons? You know, they had a little circle, um, and they they were usually pretty good. And uh, one of the kids in the cartoon was asking the mother. Um, are the epistles the apostles' wives? <laughs> now, you know, the word does kind of have that feminine sound to it. I don't know. But, but no, that's not what, what it is. It's, it's just a letter. So when you hear the, the term epistle or see it, it's just a letter. Uh, just like we would sit down and write a letter to someone. Um, Paul, in this case, the Apostle Paul, um, has written a letter to the, to the church, the congregation in Corinth. Um, and as I said, we're now chapter 14 of this letter out of 16, so moving along fairly well here, um, getting pretty close to the, to the end. And this particular section, I just want to mention again, which is, which is uh, what I'm calling a section here, is, is chapters 12, 13, and 14, where Paul is, is focusing in on the manifestations of the Spirit, what we, uh, we commonly call... Um, spiritual gifts. Um, so that's 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 the subject of his focus here. And I'm I'm getting actually that term from a uh, manifestation of the spirit from a couple of places. Um, one of which is chapter 12, verse 7, in the beginning of his arguments. To each is given uh, the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So so what Paul is talking about here is how the Holy Spirit. Um, the third person of the Godhead, how the Holy Spirit manifests His presence and power, that is, manifests Himself in the lives of individual believers in the congregation. 
And that last phrase is key here as well, and I've tried to stress that as we've been moving along. What, what Paul is talking about, the instructions that Paul is getting here, um, find their context in the congregation, congregational life. When you come together, and we're going to see that uh, again this morning. In fact, Zach just read it a moment ago in verse 26. Um, what then, brothers, when you come together? That is, when you are gathered. So that's the context of, of um, Paul's instructions. The, the gathered church, or you could just say the assembly, which is uh, another uh, term uh, for translating the word ecclesia. We, we commonly say church, but it can be tra- translated assembly. Um, so, so that's the idea here. These are instructions for practicing the manifestation, manifestations of the Spirit. He, he gives us several examples, uh, several ways in which the Holy Spirit uh, manifests Himself through individuals. And, and He's saying there's, there are proper ways, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but, but proper ways um, to operate in or to practice the manifestations of the Spirit. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's probably worth mentioning again. The, one of the primary reasons I'm, I'm referring to them the way that I am instead of using gifts, although I do that as well, you'll, you'll hear me do that also, gifts or gifts of the Spirit. But it, I just want us to understand that what, if, if we're going to use the term gifts, that's fine. Um, Paul uses it here. Um, but I just want us to understand that what the gifts are are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So it's not as though He's just handing out something what is taking place is he is manifesting himself in the lives of believers. So when, when, you, when you think about uh, particular spiritual gifts such as prophecy or tongues or words of knowledge or wisdom or um, miracles or whatever the case may be, gifts of healings, what that is is the Holy Spirit manifesting his presence and power in the lives of believers. And I would say the same thing about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not as though you know, He just hands us something. Here, have this, have that. You know, have an apple, have an orange, have love, have peace, have joy. It is, it is a manifestation of His presence and power. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Manifesting in the life of a believer, that is the Holy Spirit at work. Alright, so, um, so Paul calls them manifestations of the Spirit. And he's giving instructions... In, the, in this section, chapters 12 through 14, and, and regarding, uh, regarding them, and we're coming to the, the end of that um, today. Now, um, a little bit of a distinction here. We, the, these, actually, these two things go together, but disunity and disorder. Disunity and disorder. We, we've talked in earlier chapters about disunity in the Corinthian church. With personality-driven schisms, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Cephas. Or their mistreatment of each other. For example, you get into chapters 8 through 10 and you have um, them exercising their, quote, liberty in Christ at the expense of other Christians. Um, and you've got the divisions or the separations among them at the, at the Lord's table. Is that not ironic? Um, at the Lord's table, when they would come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, um, they were divided and they weren't caring for one another. Some were um, being gluttons and drunkards while others were actually hungry, not having enough to eat. and So they weren't caring for each other. So, so we've seen all these 
evidences of, of uh, disunity. And now Paul is, is focusing in on disorder. And I think the two are really bedfellows. And in fact, um, you know, disorder is, is, is probably a product, another byproduct of disunity. James, in James 3.16, says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and that's exactly what we've been reading about in the Corinthian epistle. That's what Paul has, has in, in several cases, brought indictments against them for. James says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice. Or King James says it this way, Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. If that's not a warning, I don't know what is. I mean, that ought to just jump out at us and make us think, you know, Lord, help us. You know, not to, not to be caught up in envying and strife or jealousy and selfish ambition because um, the result of that is disorder and every vile or worthless practice. So, this is what Paul is, is, uh, is honing in on now, the, the disorder among them. And again, we've been dealing with it the last several weeks. So this morning, I want us to remember as, as we move through here, just kind of a... Um, well, I think Paul is setting forward as a rule for public worship. Again, that's the context, right? Public worship. When you come together. And the rule is this, and I'm just putting it here in my own wording, but I'll give you the verses. Um, everything must be done decently and in order with the goal of building up the whole congregation. Everything must be done decently and in order with the goal of building up the whole congregation. And uh, we're going we're to see that as, as we move along. Um, in fact, you, know, you, you can see in the first verse, verse, 20, verse 26, the first verse we're looking at this morning, let all things be done for building up or for edifying. Edifying, the term edifying would be in some of your translations. It means building up. So like I was saying, I think it was last week, if you kind of envision in your mind the erection of an of a edifice, a structure, and you think about all that's involved with that. Danny Taylor knows a little bit about that because he plays a part in that when he does his electrical work and, and some of the other guys um, have done those kinds of things. It's, you know, the, the electrician doesn't come out and do the whole building. At least not normally. I mean, there may be some guys that do that. I don't know. But not normally. So it's all these different giftings playing a part. You've got, all, you've got even different types of carpenters that, that play a role in the, the, the totality, you know, the building up of the structure. So some come and do the frame-up job, and then you, you have guys that do the finish work and the molding and all in the interior. Um, you've got the ones that do the sheetrock and the painting. You've got the electricians. You've got the roofers that come and... Uh, and Hopefully get it in the dry. So you got all these different skills involved with erecting a building. That's the picture here. And I think really what, what Paul has in mind is not just any building, but the temple of God. And he's already alluded to it a couple of times in chapter 3 and in chapter 6. What? He says to the Corinthians, don't you know? Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of God dwells in you so he's got a particular building in mind. God's temple is being built. And in order to build it up, 
or, or like Paul says in Ephesians, to bring it to, to a maturity, mature manhood, uh, into the head, which is Christ, in order to build it up, God gifts, empowers individuals with particular skills, the manifestations of the Spirit. So that's what Paul is dealing with here. And again, the context is the assembly, the local assembly. Now, let me go back to what I mentioned a moment ago. Um, in beginning in verse 26. Goals. I'm going to call this goals for public worship. When, when we come together, we ought, we ought to have something in mind, something in view. We've got an objective. And you say, well, yes, of course. It's to worship God. Well, that's true. That's true. That is definitely, that is definitely the primary, the ultimate goal. But there are ways to go about that. We were in a, a, a meeting the other morning and, and uh, one of the guys there um, suggested that we um, that we have background music, which he referred to. This was a Bible study, which he referred to as praise and worship music. He said, "Let's let's just you know get a little radio, stereo, whatever, and put some praise and worship music on in the background, and that'll be really helpful for our discussion." And I was sitting there thinking to myself, "I, I certainly hope, you know, since we're here to uh, examine." and digest the Word of God and hopefully build up one another and be built up by one another, I certainly hope we're already engaged in praise and worship. Praise and worship is not a style of music. It is, it is what you do before God. It is a heart attitude. It is, it is God you know, uh, being in submission to God, God operating in, in us and bringing us into, into submission. Um, so, we come together with an objective, and yes, certainly, the primary one is worship God. But, and my reason for telling that little story is this, there, there are means to that end. There, there are ways in which that is done. Is, is God only praised during the song service? Well, I don't think so. Not if our hearts are right. In the right condition, you know, if we, if we really have an attitude of worship then yes, we do. We praise and we worship Him during the song service. But that continues when the plate is being passed and we're giving out of an attitude of worship. And that continues, hopefully, you know, when we're listening to a brother or sister um, bless us with a song that maybe God has put on their heart. And that continues when the preaching starts and the Word is being proclaimed and the Word is being heard. So, there are ways to worship God. I mean, there are ways that that plays out in what we do. So here are a couple of those ways. Goals for public worship. Seek to edify. Seek, and I'm just going to give you two here, but they go hand in hand. It's hard to really separate them. I mean, Paul's kind of saying the same thing two different ways here. But here's the first one in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, I think what Paul is doing there is, is setting forth a right order. We're going to be talking more about that because uh, that is uh, also significant. Uh, in fact, that's, that's the gist of this whole message. 
order in the assembly. You want, you want to have proper order in the assembly. And that doesn't mean that piano has to be on a certain side of the room or, you know, that uh, we have to have uh, the pews set up a certain way or something like that. Or it doesn't even mean that we have to have three hymns and then an offering and then a sermon and then close or have another hymn or whatever. We do refer to that as order of worship, but, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. And, and that's just one form. That, that is not the only, uh, I hope it's legitimate, but it's not the only legitimate one. And, and, and whichever form we use does not have to be immutable. We can change it. <laughs> we can change the order of service. And we do sometimes. All right. So uh, what Paul, however, is talking about here is just, uh, uh, he's got worship in mind. A, a, a right attitude, uh, of course, first of all, toward God, but he's putting emphasis here on a right attitude toward one another. And, and those two things, right, right attitude toward God, or, or you could just say right relationship with God, love for God, and right attitude or right relationship with others or love for others, those two things always go together. Man asked Jesus, what's the first and greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mean, every Jew should have known that, right? I mean, that's the obvious. That's the greatest. That's the first. But he didn't just leave it that. He said, now the second is like unto it. It's essential to the first and vice versa. I mean, they just don't, they just, I, they're distinct, obviously. But, the, but I don't think ever separate. Never separate. So our attitude or disposition toward God is reflected in our attitude and disposition toward others. So, so Paul wants us loving one another. So he, here's uh, the, uh, the instruction he gives. And again, I think, I think he is um, giving a, 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 a prescription here. And, you know, they, I've heard people say, well, I, what Paul is doing here is just indicative. I mean, he's just saying, this is what you do. He's not saying it's the right thing. He's just saying, look, when you come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. It's chaos! <laughs> I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's giving instruction here. He's saying this is the way it should be. And he's going to go on to spell out how that works. But here's the key. Again, in verse, the latter part of verse 26. This is the goal. In other words, these things, hymn, lesson, revelation, tongue, interpretation, these things are done with a goal in view, which is building up of the whole congregation. So whatever we do when we come together as a church, and I, it's applicable in, a, uh, applicable in other areas as well, but, but, but Paul is focusing in uh, focusing here, his attention here on the assembly. Whatever we do when we come together as a church, that should be our objective. The edification of the whole. The whole body. The whole congregation. So, he gives that imperative. Let all things be done for building up. Now, he's going to give some examples here. Basically, two examples. Um, um, I'm, I'm separating them in two ways. Uh, oh, let me give you the other uh, goal, although like I say, it kind of goes hand in hand with the first one. Uh, and it's in verse 33. It's hard to separate these two as well. They're, they're companions here. 
<clears throat> For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's, that's a negative way of saying, pursue peace. Pursue peace, because God is a God of peace. So, let all things be done for building up and pursue peace. And isn't it interesting, and we may come back to this um, as we move through here, but it, isn't it interesting here what Paul gives is the opposite of confusion is peace. Peace. Now, we are talking about order here, but, you, you, you know, like I say, these things kind of overlap, but you, that's what you'd kind of expect. Confusion, order. Well, that's certainly true, but the way Paul says it here is confusion contrasted by peace. Now, I think what he's saying, when you have order, you have peace, or you can turn that around. When you have peace, it's because you have order. There's a proper order. Now, he gets, as I said, a couple of examples. And first, the first one is dealing with um, two manifestations of the Spirit here that he, he has been focusing in on uh, throughout this argument in uh, chapters 12 through 14. And he gives some instruction on how, how they are to um, be practiced in the local body. Verse 27, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So there you have clear instruction on the, uh, the gift of tongues. I'll just say a couple things real quickly. We spent a lot of time on that last week, so I, don't, I won't go all back into that. Um, I'll just say this. Um, it does appear what, what Paul is talking about here is a supernatural, what I would term a supernatural uh, gifting. In other words, it's not ordinary like we might think of as uh, gifts of administration or gifts of serving or something like that that play out in an ordinary manner. This is something uh, above and beyond. It's supernatural, something that these um, Corinthians, that the, that the church was participating in that was recognized as a special endowment. Special empowerment, special gifting. And it is speaking in um, tongues. The, the old King James used, adds the phrase unknown. Unknown tongues. I said it before, I think that's helpful because that is exactly how Paul describes this gift in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So he's saying, with the gift of tongues, you, you cannot be understood. You're speaking to God, not to men. No man understands. No one understands. But in the Spirit, you speak mysteries. Now, we put a lot of emphasis last week on the idea of intelligibility, um, which is what Paul is saying here. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's got to be there in the assembly. So in other words, if nobody can understand what you're saying they're not going to be profited by it. So, he gave a rule. If there's no interpreter, the one who would speak in tongues, stay silent. Stay silent. If there's an interpreter, then he says, again in verse 27, uh, let there be only two, or at the most, three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret it. Interpret. Um, 
There must be an interpreter. Verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent. In other words, don't say anything in the assembly, in church. Keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Remember verse 2, he said he doesn't, he speaks in an unknown tongue, he speaks not unto men, but unto God. So he says, if there's no interpreter in the assembly, you keep silent or you speak to yourself and to God, but you don't speak out in tongues in the assembly when there's no interpreter present. And then the other um, manifestation of the Spirit that he addresses here, verse 28, um, but if, uh, I'm sorry, verse 29, let the, let the uh, two or three prophets speak and the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made or another, uh, to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. That's, again, the goals in terms of edification. All may learn, all may be encouraged. So Paul says here, again, uh, these gifts need to be exercised in order. The gifts of tongues, gifts of prophecy. Uh, prophecy, um, I told you last week, we defined as a, a something that is brought spontaneously to mind by God to an individual that they would share. Um, Paul says, okay, let them speak by course. In other words, it's not everybody just blurting out and overrunning everybody. Two or three. So again, three seems to be the max. Let them speak. Let the others judge or weigh what is said. I think by others there, he's referring to the whole congregation. Let the prophets speak. Let the others judge or weigh what is said. Uh, this is one reason, and I shared this last week, I'm just going to mention it quickly here. This is one reason I think there's, there is a distinction here in what we often think of as prophecy, like, like in terms of Old Testament prophecy. Um, because we, the saints, people of God, were not given the privilege of judging or weighing what the prophets said. It was line up with it or else. And we're even going to see that here in the case with the Apostle Paul. Um, but it's not the case with these prophets. What they say must be judged, must be weighed, um, tested, uh, as to whether it's uh, of God or not. Um, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Test every spirit, John says. Um, so, so there's a, a, a difference here, a distinction there seems to be uh, here. Um, okay, and then verse... Um, trying to move a little quicker here. If a, verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So there's deference. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, that's the goal. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, Paul is saying, you do have self-control. You do. If you're really operating by the influence of the Spirit. And that's, again, been a key theme all the way through this epistle. He's, he's contrasting true spirituality with their false idea of what it means to be spiritual ones. So, true uh, spirit people, charismatics, if you want to call them that, and I told you last week, every Christian's a charismatic because uh, it, that just means gifted. You know, you're gifted by God. Or, or pneumatica, the Greek. Um, every Christian is spiritual because you have the Spirit of Christ in you. So, true spirit people, Paul says, have self control. 
The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In other words, order and peace is consistent with the character of God. Chaos, selfishness, divisions, disorder, disunity, contrary to the character of God. So, here they are engaging in all these things, all kinds of disunity, um, all kinds of selfishness, uh, envy, strife, disorder, and they are saying in the midst of all of this, we are spirit people, we are spiritual ones. And Paul's coming back and saying, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, at least you're not, certainly not acting like it. Um, verse 34. Well, let me pick up in verse 33 again. The, here's the second example that Paul gives concerning order. How much time left to deal with this one? Okay, we may have to continue this one tonight, but let's, let's go ahead and start on it. Verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, that is, in the assembly. There again, there's the context. In, in the church, in the assembly. I want to uh, mention to you real quick two views concerning what Paul is, is saying here. And, uh, and I want you to weigh these out. And, you know, I've, I've uh, sure as many of you have, looked at this for years and and boy, especially over this past couple of weeks or whatever, I mean, talk about wrestling. You, know, you think about Jacob wrestling with the angel, and, and uh, there's certainly been uh, some, some wrestling here, which is often required when you're dealing with God's Word. But, but like Jacob with the angel, you always come away blessed from the struggle, even if, um, even if you don't come away with full understanding. So it's always good to, to wrestle with God's truth. Uh, in the right way, I mean, not not that you would, um, not that you would be in rebellion against it and wrestle with God, but but wrestling to to uh, to discern, to to uh, to learn the truth. Um, so I'm gonna give you a couple of uh, views of this, and I want to share some things with you real quick before we close. Um, one view is this. Um, well, let me, let me give you three different views. I'm going to be real quick on the first one. One view is this, that Paul is just talking about a cultural problem. And this doesn't really have any application to us at all today. In other words, the, the women in Corinth were, were really causing trouble. And so Paul was dealing with that. Let the, let the women you know, be silent in the assembly. Um, and this doesn't have any relevance for us today, unless, of course... You've got women stirring up trouble. Well, I think there are several reasons to uh, object to that. Um, one, of course, is because I think the latter part of verse 33 goes with those instructions. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. So Paul's saying this, this is the way it is in all of the churches of God. All right? So... Um, I don't think he's talking about something just, uh, just related to their culture. I think he's talking about a universal principle. And, and not just for that time either, but for all times. All right? So, 
That's one view, though. Now, here's, here's another view, and this, of course, is um, not well received, but I think that in our day especially, but, I, but it has more validity to it than the one I just told you, I think. Um, the other view is this. What, what Paul means here is exactly what he says, and that in the assembly, women should be silent. That is, they should not speak in the assembly. When the, when the church is gathered... Women should not speak. They should be silent. Uh, and there are churches that practice that, that hold of that, that practice that. Um, well, I'll, I'll share some difficulties, I think, here in a moment. But, uh, well, let me, let me give you one. Let me give you one right now. We'll talk a little bit more about it before we close. But um, chapter 11, Paul gives instruction for women prophesying and praying you may remember when we dealt with that. Um, he, it was instruction concerning the, the covering, the head covering. And so he says, he speaks of maintaining the traditions. And he says, um, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, it's possible that here uh, he's, he's referring to when she prays or prophesies in private or just among other women. But I think there are some hints here that, that also in chapter 11 he's referring to the assembly. Because for one thing, he's going to go on in that, that same context to talk about the Lord's Supper and the problems they were having um, in the observance of the Lord's Supper. Another one is in verse 10, he gives this reason for the women, for the head covering, for the women being in submission. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Alright, that word angels, angelos in the Greek, can simply mean messengers. And sometimes it does in the New Testament, and frankly, I'm not convinced that this is not one of the times that that's what it means. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Revelation when he when he gives uh, when he gives letters to the to the angels to the angelos to the messengers of the churches. So, in other words, probably just talking about men in the congregation, possibly the pastor, possibly um, messengers. You know, Paul would talk about men like Epaphroditus who would bring uh, bring the maid and bring them reports. So he may have someone like that in view. But in other words, if, you, if that's the right translation of angelos, women need to be in submission because of the messengers in the church. Then he's talking about the assembly, it would seem to me. And there, there are other indications there as well. Um, so, there is the view that Paul just means, hey, when you come together as a church, the assembly, women cannot speak. I think there's some difficulties with that, I just, which I just showed you. third view that I'm going to give you is this, and I want to read a quote from you here, and this also makes sense to me, but it also has difficulties. And I'm, I'm reading this from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I'm just going to read a, a paragraph here. In this section, Paul cannot be prohibiting all public speech by women in the church, for he clearly allows them to pray and prophesy in church in 1 Corinthians 11.5, which is what we just talked about. Therefore, it is best to understand this passage 
as referring to speech that is in the category of being discussed in the immediate context. Now, what kind of speech is being discussed in the immediate context? Tongues and prophecy, right? Tongues and prophecy. Namely, the spoken evaluation and judging of prophecies in the congregation. So you look back in verse 29, and, and uh, the, the Apostle Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. What Grudem is suggesting here is that he thinks, when you get down to verse 33 and 34, that that's still what Paul has in view. So he goes on, quote, um, While Paul allows women to speak and give prophecies in the church meeting, he does not allow them to speak up and give evaluations or critiques of the prophecies that have been given. Why is that? For this would be a ruling or governing function with respect to the gift of prophecy in the New Testament age. Namely, that prophecy involves not authoritative Bible teaching and not speaking words of God which are equal to Scripture, but rather reporting something which God spontaneously brings to mind. Now, in this way, Paul teaches, Paul's teachings are quite consistent in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, where there, um, he also says the women should be silent, but he uses a different word there, which I think is significant. That's the idea of, of quiet, like, like, quiet, like quietly, um, meaning sub, to be in submission. In both cases, that is here in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy 2, in both cases he is concerned to preserve male leadership in the teaching and governing of the church. Of the church. So what Grudem is suggesting there is, is that when you get down to verse 33 and 34, um, verse uh, 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, is that he is prohibiting public critique or evaluation of prophecies that have been publicly spoken. He's saying that that's a governing or teaching role in and of itself, uh, and, and so it is reserved for men. It is interesting here that he keeps using these words, speak and silent. You look in verse 27, if any speak, and that is the issue here, if any speak in a tongue, and he goes to give instructions, verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the assembly and speak to himself. You get to verse 30, for revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. And then you get to verse 34, that the women, uh, the women should keep silent. So, the, so what he's discussing here is speech in the assembly, when to speak and when not to speak. Someone wants to speak in tongues, if there's no interpreter, keep silent. Someone wants to speak a prophecy, something's revealed to another one, it's just about it. The first, keep silent. As in all the churches of the saints, let the women, the women should keep silent in the church. For it is shameful, verse 35, for a woman to speak in the assembly. Okay, so there are some examples of order concerning tongues, prophecy, and concerning the role of women in the church. Now, just a final exhortation here and we're done. I'm going to uh, basically skip over verse uh, 36 and 37 because I intend to come back to that tonight. 36 through 38. <clears throat> verse 39. So, my brothers, here's his final exhortation in this argument. So, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy 
and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. You see, that's, that's Paul's theme here. Order rather than disorder. Peace rather than confusion. Chaos. Disorder. And so, nowhere in this argument has he tried to discourage them from engaging in or practicing the spiritual gifts, the manifestations of the Spirit. What he is doing is saying there must be a proper mindset, attitude, disposition toward God, toward one another. In fact, in these closing statements, this is actually an exhortation to pursue, like we've been talking about, the edification of the whole congregation through um, the gifting provided by the Holy Spirit. So, my brothers, earnestly desire, be zealous for prophecy. Now, he's been setting prophecy forward as superior to tongues. And why? They, I think there's a couple reasons for that. It seems to me the, the Corinthians had, had uh, an uh, overemphasized you know, fascination with tongues, just like we see today in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And, and, and Paul is saying it, it, it has essentially no usefulness in the church because nobody can understand what's being said unless there's interpretation. So what he encourages them to do is to be zealous for prophecy. Now, he does say in one place concerning the tongues, you know, pray for interpretation. Whatever is said in the congregation, in the assembly, must be intelligible. In order to be helpful, it must be understood. So he says, my brothers, earnestly desire, be zealous to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now that's interesting because in one sense, he's just given a lot of instruction that could easily come across as being negative toward this particular gift or manifestation of the Spirit. Maybe he has that in mind, and so he's clear as he closes out and says, do not forbid it. Now that doesn't change the fact that it must be for the purpose of edification, which means... When practiced, it must be done decently and in order according to the instructions that Paul has given here. But nevertheless, a clear prohibition on forbidding it. I was really saddened a couple of years ago when the Southern Baptist Convention chose to do that very thing um, regarding missionaries. And I think I understand why they did it, but it still doesn't make me a lot... Um, happier about it um, because it runs um, head on into Paul's wording here against that, uh, taking that, that attitude. Uh, like I say, I, I think I understand why they did it um, and I think it had more to do with an understanding of the gift and not just a, uh, uh, not just an opposition to it, but, but a different understanding of it. Uh, but nevertheless, um, exactly what is being prohibited here has been done in the, in the case of our missionaries uh, in the International Mission Board, people employed by the International Mission Board. But now here's the bottom line, verse 40. All things should be done decently and in order. 
So this is where Paul has been going the whole time. Everything must be done for edification, building up of the whole body rather than all the selfish activity that's going on in the Corinthian church. Paul is saying you've got to come together with this objective, glorify God by seeking to build up the whole congregation. Everything you do in speech and everything you do in activity must be for the purpose of building up the whole body and must be ordered. Three reasons for that. I'm just going to mention them and give you the verses. First, uh, because this is consistent with God's character. Again, that's implied in verse 33. God is not um, God of confusion, but of peace. So these standards for um, practice that, that Paul is setting forth here, these, these standards for order, um, are consistent with God's character. Everything must be done decently and in order. Everything must be in the, done in pursuit of peace. Everything must be for the edification of the whole body. The second one, um, this is characteristic of God's churches. Characteristic of God's characters, characteristic of God's churches. Second part of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, Paul says. He's saying this, this is the way it is in all of the churches of God. And then thirdly, God's command. So here are the three standards for practice. God's character, God's churches, and God's command. That's verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, that's been the issue, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. Paul is saying you must line up in the assembly when you gather, when you come together, verse 26, when you come together, you must line up with the command of the Lord. Pursue edification and peace because that's consistent with God's character. Do things in order because that's what all the churches do. Do all of these things because it is God's command. Would you stand please? kind of interesting that when Paul finishes here in, in what we call chapter 14, that he moves right into talking about the essence of the Gospel. Sometimes we disconnect these things, you know, like, well, what does all this have to do with the Gospel? And, you know, we, after all, you know, we just said we need to be here for edification, right? And we're, here we are talking about church order. Because, again, because that's part of God's order. That's the way that we are benefited spiritually through doing things God's way. Believing God, what God has said, truth that He has given us, and doing things God's way. Let's pray. Father, we do come again in the name of Jesus and want to express our thanks again this morning, Lord, for Your love for us and for 
Your grace in giving us Your Word. Lord, we pray, grant understanding, show us how to apply all of these things in our own lives and, and corporately as we gather together each time as a church. Lord, help us to seek the application of one another, of the whole body. Help us, Lord, because we're all sinful human beings. Help us to pursue peace. Fill us with Your Spirit, Father, so that we think and act and speak under the influence of Your Holy Spirit. May it all abound to Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Oh, there you go.